Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm CJ. And I'm James. And this is the only podcast where that's the last time you ride the ghost train Johnny friend Zeta. Now say your prayers. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. And this week we are looking at maybe the most divisive episode of Doctor Who ever made, Love and Monsters. But as always, before we get into that sticky hot mess, um, how are you this week, CJ? Um, you know what? I'm pretty good. And I don't know why. And I don't know how. And I'm not trusting this feeling, but I feel like, okay. I can't put it down to any particular thing. Uh, the end of this rambling little segment is that I feel good. What about you? Um, much the same way. I don't trust it, but I'm happy to ride out the vibe and see where it goes. <laughs> um, it, it's been like, it's been a fine week. Uh, you know, work has been fine. Writing has been fine. Things are just like fine. Um, and honestly, I think both of us would take a bit of a dull fine after the year that we've had. Um, yeah, truly. Um, here in Australia, the Melbourne's just recently got out of a, like a 12 month lockdown, which is, uh, I think a collective sigh of relief for everyone really, who's been riding along in Australia, that little journey with them. I don't know about you in Adelaide, James, but here in Sydney, things, things pretty feel like they're pretty back much back to normal. Um, I even went to the theater the other day. Do you remember the theater? Fuck. It was fun. I do. I do remember the theatre. I, yeah, things are pretty, like, relatively chill here in Adelaide, if I'm being completely honest. Like, a few weeks back, we kind of got back to some semblance of normal. I went and saw Tenet, which was a choice. Um, Mm. You know, yeah. It's, life post-COVID is strange because, like, Australia's economy and job market and general fabric of society has been a little bit decimated. Um, And so now everyone's just kind of, like, easing back into quote-unquote normality. And, um, again, like we've said at the beginning of this episode, it's difficult to trust when things feel stable in 2020. No Doctor Who news this week. Uh, Granted, a little inside baseball for you. We are recording this only a week after we recorded our um, Cyberman episode. And so there hasn't been much time for anything interesting to really come up in the news. Mm, Even though the last episode we recorded was The Impossible Planet and Satan Pit. Um, No, there's no Doctor Who news this week, um, which is fine, generally speaking. Doctor Who's allowed to have a week off. Um, So without much further ado, unless you have anything to add, James, let's get into this episode. Let's do it. Lights! I am your salvation. The sound of the universe. What does it mean? His name is the Doctor. Doctor what? Find me that girl! Here we are, complete strangers, and I'm flashing you my knickers. One step closer to catching the Doctor. Don't I know you? Whoa, okay. Love and monsters. Divisive, hated, loathed. These are just some words that people might ascribe to this episode. Not here on Two Hearts, but we're going to get to that in a minute. It's episode 10 of season two. It's directed by Dan Zeff, his only contribution to Doctor Who, and written by erstwhile showrunner Russell T. Davies. Now, if we look at IMDb, it's pretty good this week. The synopsis they give is Elton Pope is an ordinary man intrigued by the world of the Doctor. When he and fellow enthusiasts Linda meet the mysterious Victor Kennedy, their lives will never be the same again. But just for those who haven't seen uh, this episode, we'll just give you a quick, a quick little uh, rundown of the plot. Um, we open on Elton Pope, a fit 20-something with blonde hair running across a desolate landscape. He sees a familiar blue box in the distance, but something else grabs his attention. The screams of Rose Tyler and the Doctor. Running into a warehouse, he gets set upon by a hoiks. The iconic hoiks. Anyway, this isn't even the start of the story, so let's dial it back a bit. Elton is an average, everyday human. As a kid, the Doctor appeared in his house, and to this day, he doesn't know why, but he's obsessed with finding out. We see him relive Earth invasions from the past two seasons, which leads him to Ursula Blake, part of a group all searching for the Doctor. The group, branding themselves Linda, 
share their theories and obsessions about the Doctor, but as time goes on, the walls come down and they share their other loves of food, music, and literature. They even form a little band, which is why the arrival of a certain Mr. Kennedy is doubly sad. He warps the group into a Doctor-finding machine at the same time as Linda members start mysteriously disappearing. Mr. Kennedy sends Elton out on a mission to find Rose Tyler, which leads him to Jackie. Elton ingratiates himself with the lonely mother of one who flirts with him vigorously, but a call from Rose sends Jackie spinning back to Earth as she laments being left behind. Elton comforts Jackie and has a moment of revelation about his true feelings for Ursula, sweet Ursula, but Jackie discovers a picture of Rose in his jacket and warns him to stay away from her, Rose, and the Doctor. Elton snaps, telling Mr. Kennedy the way he treated Jackie was shameful and that they're all leaving. But Mr. Kennedy has other ideas because he's actually, in actuality, shock, horror, and alien. The Absorbaloff, which Elton weirdly names him. The Absorbaloff can absorb people into itself, trapping them as faces on his skin for all eternity, which is actually pretty horrific. He absorbs Ursula, who urges Elton to run. After a chase, the Absorbaloff has Elton cornered in an alley, but a chance arrival of the Doctor inspires the absorbed members of Linda to pull the creature apart, giving Elton the chance to snap its cane slash limitation field and absorb the Absorbaloff into the earth. Sure. The Doctor reveals the reason he was in Elton's house that night was because a shadow creature was there, the same creature that killed Elton's mother. The Doctor resurrects Ursula as a face on a paving slab, and Elton lives in eternal bliss with his municipal concrete love. A happy ending all round, wouldn't you say, James? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) And you know I wouldn't. (laughs) It's just a bit of theatre, just a bit of, you know, a spoken word at the top of this episode. Mm, mm, I, I particularly appreciated the uh, desolate landscape and fit 20 something. Look, okay, popular. like, okay, let's just get this out of the way. I am weirdly attracted to Elton. I can't help it. Oh, we're all weirdly attracted to Elton. I'm just saying, if we're going to spend two seasons of our podcast dragging the <laughs> IMDb dude for his plot descriptions, and then suddenly you get to get away with that kind of shit, it's a double standard. And I want to make sure if he's listening, uh, I'm, I'm aware. Maybe I'm being absorbed by the IMDb descriptions. I don't know. That joke ran away from me. It did. It did. I'll tell you what else gets away from itself. Love and monsters. Yes. Do you want to give us your impressions of this episode, James? I I do. So Love and Monsters is, for my money, almost perfect. Um, which is, I think... Outside of my opinions on Clara and Hellbent, I do think my most like controversial uh, new who opinion is that this episode is, is pretty fucking fantastic. If I'm you know, putting it all on the table, um, there is some stuff in the last like, you know, 15, 10 minutes that I think really tanks the episode in a, in a pretty tragic way um, because, and it will tie it back into a lot of the other criticisms that we've made of the show in the past. Um, but up until that point, I think you've got this like, really fantastic light on its feet uh broad stroke commentary on fandom on found family on actual family um and just the connections that people can make it's it's astoundingly funny it's tightly written um uh, yeah i when we did our little rewatch of this um and i remembered love and monsters being being quite hated i remember saying to you before i got up to love and monsters oh i don't really want to watch that one and then i watched it and um yeah i blown away by how much i enjoyed this one how about you you've kind of summed up my feelings almost exactly the same we are a hundred percent on the same page when it comes to love and monsters i for the longest time and I'm so glad that I finally have the forum in which to say all this. Um, I have always kind of felt like Love and Monsters gets so much unjust hatred. And I truly think it's one of the unsung heroes, not just of this season, but Doctor Who in general. I love its experimental nature. I love how fresh and flexible and tactile an episode it is. I love the very broad strokes of characters, but extremely well felt and uh, um, realized in this episode. I just, I I think it's an experiment that was well worth doing. 
for budgetary reasons and obviously behind the scenes stuff. Um, and I feel like it's a real, real shame that, that we haven't gotten anything like this since, but we never got anything like this since from Russell T. Like this is his Mm. truly his most experimental. Um, I know that a lot of people will be like, well, think about turn left or think about midnight, but those episodes are, they're, they're not, I'll go into greater detail during the episode, but they're not like what he's doing here. Um, I mean, yeah, I would say that like those episodes are experimental within the traditional framework of Doctor Who, whereas what Love and Monsters is doing is pushing itself outside of those boundaries. Um, and it can't quite maintain its balance out there. Like it, as we've sort of alluded to, it does stumble in that ending. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it is wholly unique as an episode of Doctor Who. Um and yet, I, I completely agree. It's very unfairly maligned. Um, even to this day, like we've talked before about how there's been this like new wave of, of Doctor Who reviews and reactions on YouTube and whatnot. And just the, the glee that people get from tearing this episode apart genuinely confuses me because I think that if you engage with it on its own terms, you come out the other end uh, with quite a, just like a, a lovely funny little episode um that yeah exactly to your point we don't really see again i know that other seasons do dr light episodes though don't they like blink is the best example i can think of yeah so um for a bit of context the reason why these episodes uh even began is because doctor who was a runaway success in 2005 and they the bbc said you should put on a christmas special but we're not going to give you any more money or time to make it so they were like shit We've got to somehow get an extra episode out, but we can't spend any money on it or use like our main actors. Um, and so that's where this concept was born of the Dr. Light episode. It was a, it, it, it's, it fits into that like existing formula that Russell T has set out for his seasons where it's like starting episodes, present, future, past, alien invasion, some tent poly episodes in the middle, experimental kind of like a two-parter, and then budget, <laughs> a budget episode at the end before the finale. Um, and so it easily fit into this slot because it's got a lot of similarities with, I guess, Boomtown as well from season one. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, like the, 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 the non-presence of the Doctor and, and the, the main actors of the show was the defining feature of this particular episode. And there's been a, a, like a fine pedigree of episodes that have followed it as well. Like obviously you say Blink, um, the midnight and two turn left kind of function in that way because one does without Donna and the other one does without the doctor. Uh, the lodger is one. Um, they kind of get a bit like left behind during Stephen Moffat's era. I guess he just found different ways of achieving that same end of, you know, trying to balance the budget and the main star's time. Um, yeah. (laughs) You say things now. (laughs) Good, 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 <laughs> good work. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't really think of anything in Moffat's era that um, uh, really brushes up against this. Although, to be fair, again, my my understanding of Moffat's era is pretty restricted to Peter Capaldi at the moment, but uh, we, <laughs> we'll get there. Um, so I guess we should probably start with... Um, this episode is a surprising love letter to Jackie. I think is where I want to start because Jackie has obviously had a bit of a rough run and we have been very vocal in our criticisms of how the show has handled Jackie. Um, And so, yeah, I I think it would be good to, to maybe talk about the fact that this episode goes out of its way to not only humanize her um, from a sort of like pain or trauma point of view, but um, in every facet, like we get horny Jackie, but it doesn't feel like a joke that she's horny. Like she feels like she is in control of her sexuality here. She's in control of her emotions here. Um, And uh, what's her name? Camille? Camille Corduri. Camille Corduri just knocks it out of the park. Yeah. um, You and I were talking before the episode, Obviously, we were. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the things I remember saying to you was, um, it, as Doctor Who fans are want to do, you sort of try and find ways to fix episodes you really love. Um, and one of the ways I was sort of thinking about this episode was, what if Jackie had been the main character 
Um, I'm not saying that would have fixed or necessarily made this episode better, but I, I do think it, it points towards mm. uh, the love that you and I both have for Jackie as a character and how much we do really just want to see her take a bit more of a prominent role. She gets her most prominent role in this episode, but she is only on screen for maybe, I think, 10 or so minutes of the actual plot. Um, this is a story, this is an episode about Elton, um, specifically, but we do get the best insight into her head, into how, she, into her as a character, basically. And it, it, the, the great thing about it is that it doesn't actually contradict or, um, get in the way of anything that we've already established about her character. It's not like she's got this deep interiority that we've never seen before. It's always been there. It's just that we finally get to sort of feel it along with her. I think the only other episode that really gets close to the that kind of feeling for me is um uh the ending of World War 3 back in season 1 uh which did like that was a whole 10 minutes or so of the end of the episode that was dedicated to the fact that Rose was leaving again. Um and we get the same kind of exchange of Jackie going, you know, please don't go and and the contemplating that life without her daughter finally um now we've seen her and she's sort of sunk into that reality and lives it very much but the one thing i also and i'll um you can talk to this one james i think one thing i really love about her is that like she has progressed so much as well from that character we saw in season one and the thing i really love about her that i didn't pick up on the first time is the fact that she isn't just defending Rose in that little speech she gives at the end to Elton. She's defending the doctor as well. She's defending her daughter's life choices. And she's just proving to herself to be such a loyal, loving, worthy character. Yeah, totally. I I think to your point about uh, the fact that this interiority to her has always existed, but the show has never drawn on it. Um, I... (laughs) Like, is that a tomato tomato situation where, um, like, yes, we can assume that Jackie has interiority in the same way that we assumed Mickey had it, but until the show actually does something with it, um, I don't want to give it any points for (laughs) for that writing. Um, and like, yeah, like the scene at the end of World War Three, I I agree. Like, you do get those little flashes of a really fantastic uh character for Jackie, where she is primarily defined through her motherhood with Rose, and I, I get that she is a supporting character. She is written just to be Rose's mother, basically. But what I like about uh, what Love and Monsters does with her is that she gets to be a woman outside of her motherhood, specifically. Um, hence why I brought up the sexuality stuff. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff that this episode does that the other ones just either don't have the time to do or can't be bothered to do. Yeah. And to sort of defend myself a little bit, I I guess I would mean that I, I just, I liked that this episode didn't contradict anything we already knew about Jackie up to this point. That was more my sort of feeling. Um, But yeah, no, fair Mm. enough. Like, and this is, the case of side characters, you know, which this is, a, this is an episode that is a hundred percent about not just people who've been left behind, but like the people who are not present during the doctor's adventures, um, and the lives that they live. And so when we ever, like you said, like when we see Jackie, it's always tethered to how she's feeling about Rose. It's always tethered to Rose really. And how she perceives her mother. And as we've noted many times, she's not exactly very complimentary towards her. Um, so yeah, I to your point, I hundred percent agree that like we finally get to see her out on her own, being Jackie, flashing on Nickus to strangers, uh, and just being amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's because she is amazing. Like, um, I think the reason why we were so warm ab- about Jackie as a character is because like there is a lot of earnest goodness in her as as a character as as a mother as a woman as as whatever you want to sort of uh describe her as um and so you know when episodes like father's day or the cyberman one just insist on pigeonholing her into this kind of like you know vapid kind of bitchy uh defensive woman um it 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 just makes it doubly frustrating now when you look at something like Love and Monsters and you're like, okay, so Russell T Davies is obviously clearly aware that he has written a character here who does have that interiority. Oh, 
sorry, who does have that interiority and who um, is capable of experiencing that sort of like wide range of emotions. And then I wonder if an episode like Love and Monsters wouldn't hit as hard if we had seen this Jackie more often leading up to this. Uh, and I don't think it would, but I'm also not sure I'm comfortable with that trade-off of having to wait until, you know, nearing the very end of season two, which is nearing the very end of sort of Jackie's main bulk of time on the show to get to explore this character um, in a satisfying way. Well, yeah. It's the nature of Doctor Who, isn't it? You know, it's it's a show that is constantly, constantly changing. And uh, when you do when you do a show where you're changing your not only your like your main cast every couple of seasons, but also your like supporting characters every single episode, it's always gonna feel it's always gonna feel like you never got enough time with certain people. But with Jackie is especially egregious because we did actually get a lot of time with her, and it's only at this point, like you say, that we finally get mm. her. Um, but I wouldn't. F- for, for saying that, I wouldn't um, malign the show for that choice. Its first season had to really establish and uh, ground us as an audience in Rose and the Doctor. That was its primary function. And, and we did get this eventually. We did. We did. But uh, again, it's like the Mickey stuff. Like... I don't, I'm not comfortable with settling for eventually. Um, and that's obviously not casting any aspersions on people who are happy with the way that these two seasons went. Like, mm. live your truth. I, I don't really give a shit. Um, it's just for me, as a viewer, what I appreciate about the show, and especially now on this rewatch, what I'm seeing now a little bit more is that, um, you know, these two seasons, like, I know it's called Doctor Who, and I know that Rose is the companion, um, but the way it prioritizes characterization and depth of character, um, I think is, is very evident. And so when you want to do an episode like Love and Monsters or like uh, The Age of Steel and The Rise of Cybermen, uh, where suddenly these characters that you've mostly treated as one beat jokes suddenly need to do a bit of emotional heavy lifting, it more comes down to the performances turned in. And uh, again, Camille and um, uh, who's the actor that plays Mickey? Noel Clark. Noel Clark, yeah. So like the two of them obviously do an incredible job. Like I, it's... A testament to them, I think, how much depth they infuse these episodes with when those characters do finally get a chance to shine. Um, but again, that, that's a, that's a more of a wider season two and season one criticism in turn. Um, Love and Monsters does treat Jackie with like exceptional care because she is able to... Like, so she gets these like fantastic scenes where, you know, El- she keeps inviting Elton over because she keeps breaking things in the house specifically to, to have him come over and fix them in an attempt to like woo him, you know? Yeah. And then on the last time that he comes over, uh, she's, she's giving him a glass of wine and she accidentally spills a little bit on his shirt and he's like, oh no, it's just a little bit. It's not ruined. And she's like, no, you'll have to take it off. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. It's just a little bit. And then she spills like half the glass down him. She's like, well now it's definitely ruined. And it's just lovely to, and like that combined with like you know all those shots of her like checking him out when he's working on things because his shirt lifts up a little bit or like you know he's bending mm. over so she gets to check out his ass which we're all doing as well elton is like astoundingly hot mm. sometimes it's it's bizarre um it's it doesn't feel like it's treating her as a joke in those scenes it feels like it's legitimately saying like she's a single woman why wouldn't she pursue somebody who was in her life and i like that where other jackie stories would have used this as just an excuse for another punchline about jackie this one says no like she's still going to be like the goofy fun jackie that we know and love but at the same time these are genuine actions committed by like a a genuine woman which makes the flip of those actions you know when she's trying to seduce him and she gets the phone call from rose and she gets like sort of like pushed back into that like um you know supporting mother waiting for her daughter role and then it's it's interesting because then elton's there to kind of like actively lift her out of it sure i mean yeah okay yeah like obviously rose's phone call does put her back into that spot but it I wouldn't criticize that, not to say you're criticizing it, but I wouldn't criticize that because it's we're seeing it in context of everything else around her for the first time. And we're seeing it in relation to like what you say, like about her being a flirty woman and being a single woman as well. And the reality of that is that when you are a single woman with a single, with like a single mother as well, with a daughter that leaves you, these are the moments that are going to happen. It's a patchwork of your, it's a patchwork of her life in a sense, essentially um, in the same way this, this episode mm. is a patchwork of, I'm going to 
go big here the experience of life do you yeah no 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 you're you're, you're totally right i think the other reason like i i specifically refer to that moment as as like pushing her back into that uh role is because like love and monsters is profoundly meta do you know what i mean like it's specifically written as like a meta study of of doctor who fandom and i think in turn you can also view it as a study of the roles that these characters inhabit in this universe um and so i think that while it is it's simultaneously a very organic and real human moment it is also that whole structure of Doctor Who kind of like crashing back into her life which is why when she finds out that Elton is there to spy on her she has this like horrible visceral reaction as if reacting to like of course it couldn't possibly be about me like the episode Mm. couldn't just be about me it had to be about him as well and while she does have like like you said that really good reaction where she defends Rose and the Doctor and it's a it's a really lovely like growth moment for Jackie as well um I, I think it does speak volumes to the fact that like you've got this you know, very like lonely, wonderful woman just kind of like sitting around waiting for the plot to remember that she exists. Which is sad and a tragedy and very much Russell T's writing and the way that this character's written. I would never, I would never say I don't like, I, I don't like it for her because I like her as a character, but I'm also aware that it's working dramatically um, as a plot beat and a character beat. Yeah, it it does. Uh, and I definitely I I don't think it doesn't. What I find interesting is like this one comes straight after um the Satan pit, which is a two-parter where we see Rose face with the reality of never seeing her mother again and she's just like, "Meh." Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you know, and and so um I I, I definitely understand what you're saying because like Russell T Davies is writing, um, as we said last week, like when it veers a bit nihilistic and a bit more dramatically dark, it's very satisfying. And so, and, and look, that's even something we're going to get to in this episode with the um, absorbal often with Ursula and everything. Mm-hmm. I don't mind when a narrative is cruel to a character for dramatic effect because I think that can be quite interesting. Um, what bothers me, and this is a, I think a consistent thing that you and I have talked about across these two seasons now, is that... I'm genuinely not sure if the sh- if as a creative force the show and the writing is aware that it's doing these things to these characters. Uh yeah, no, look, valid, very 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 valid. And um on the topic of the way that show treats people, um we could also talk about the way that this episode tackles fandom and the way it treats uh the Doctor Who fandom. Yes, we we definitely could because I uh, not not to, I'm I don't mean to keep doing this everybody and I'm I'm terribly sorry but it's just it's organically happening. Um, I'm not sure I've ever seen another piece of uh, popular writing so openly have a dialogue with its own fandom um, than Love and Monsters. The only thing I can think of is The Last Jedi in that sometimes these things are written with the very specific intention of interrogating the very people who love the thing that they're watching. Um, and I think in that sense, I kind of understand why people had such a hard time with love and monsters because it on the surface, it can definitely appear quite unfair to fandom. Um, but I think it actually has quite a positive message about the people that love Doctor Who uh, and the reasons that they love it and the things that they find through it. Um, but it also contains that like little streak of like RTD nihilism and um, uh, not not cruelty because I, I don't think the show is being cruel in the way it's depicting fandoms here. Uh, I think it is just being like brutally honest about the fact that there are certain fans that exist who will absorb and poison things that they become involved in. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's a, um, an unfair or, a um, yeah, an unfair thing to say. I think that we, I think that the fandom in general is very much aware that these people exist. It's just a problem that obviously the, those people don't realize that they are those people <laughs> and the Victor Kennedys of the world aren't aware that they are like sucking the life. Well, maybe Victor in this episode is aware of what he's doing, but in general, Doctor Who fandom, the toxic fans are not aware that they are toxic. You know, they um, say Jodie Whittaker's not my doctor and blah, 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 and all that stuff and think they're avenging angels. Um, mm. Yeah. But that's going down a different rabbit hole. 
Um, <laughs> it would be interesting if the Absorbloff was like, mm, I hope you're never a woman, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, okay. <laughs> um, I wasn't planning on it. Maybe in a couple of regenerations time. Um, this is very specific. <laughs> <laughs> is this a bit? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I, mm. The, the idea of like a self-aware troll is uh, quite a horrible thing that definitely does exist. Like there are people out there who do specifically move into fandom circles with the intention of like sowing mistrust and, and drama and all that and fucking fun stuff that we all love so much. Um, but that's sort of further down the road. So Love and Monsters, uh, through the narrative device of um, Elton himself being a fan of the doctor. Um, you know, he, he goes out and he finds, or he founds Linda, you know? Uh, and so he meets up with like this group of other fans and they start with these like dingy little meetings at, at the bottom of like an old library where they're just sitting around on fold up chairs in a small circle, exchanging stories about the doctor. And then, you know, it progresses from there. They each start showing off like essentially their fan fiction, which takes the form of, you know, uh, uh, Bliss's sculptures that she creates to represent what the Doctor is and what he's not and what he'll never be and all that sort of good stuff. Mm. And then it's slowly over the course of about like five to ten minutes. It's not a particularly long section of the episode, um, but you see this like escalation of then they start bringing in food, then they start sharing personal stories with each other, they start getting to care about each other in a very like found family way, you know, and then it eventually escalates into them forming a band and creating music together which again is another interesting commentary on fandom the idea of you know once a fandom gets together and is passionate enough that they will inevitably start to create their own art um and i i I think that that leg of the episode and what it ultimately has to say about what those connections meant um is a profoundly positive message about fandom i think rtd you know gives a shit that people give a shit a hundred percent i think this is um very, 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 a very warm, uh, interpretation of what fandom is and what community is as well. Like I wouldn't even like hold it down to just being a reading on, on fandom. Um, but to the way in which humanity makes communities out of, you know, broken, not, not necessarily broken people, but just people, people who are joined by a common, a common thing, um, can make a little home for themselves. In some ways, it's even about, like, found family. And for an LGBT writer to be writing this kind of story, it rings very, 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 very true. Um, we, and that's something we could talk about in a bit. Um, with Victor, I feel like... So Victor is the, the sort of, as we said before, he's the super fan that sucks the fun out of, the, out of this fandom for everyone um and i think that's a valid reason reading of his character but i'm not entirely sure if it should like necessarily be a story beat in doctor who um and the only reason why i say that is because i'm not generally a fan of episodes that like poke fun at their fan base but at the same time like i wouldn't classify this as poking fun because of how sympathetic and um well drawn the linda characters are and they are essentially the heroes of this episode um but mm, there's a f- they do get the hero moment they get the hero moment exactly they get the hero moment but there is like a fine line when you put your fans it's the same i, I don't know if you know this or not there's an episode of classic who 1988 uh called the greatest show in the galaxy um now and, <laughs> and at this time like the show was pretty preca- precariously like it was half one foot in the grave basically um even though it was going through a creative renaissance and um they in this particular story they had a character called the whiz kid and the whiz kid was a hundred percent a parody of like the worst excesses of doctor who of not just doctor who fans but like this cliched version of what fans are and it's like don't poke fun of the only people that are keeping you alive at this point doctor who like please don't do that um (laughs) And so that's a very misguided attempt. This less so, but it's still on that kind of track. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think that, i put it this way. If in season um, or series 13, is that what we're going to be up to next? 14? 
Uh, 13. Jodie Whittaker. 13. If, yeah, yeah. If in series 13, uh, Jodie Whittaker went up against a fedora-wearing villain who specifically said, no, I've come here to fight the Doctor and you're not the Doctor, um, I would wholeheartedly welcome that. I, I think the, <laughs> the concept of a, a popular piece of media actively tackling the worst of its fandom is a good thing. Um, because while... I agree. I don't want it to ever make fun of those fans. I, I do think that that's that's inherently cruel. And there are certain creatives out there. Like there was a recent, uh, there was some drama around like a Netflix series where I think it ended in a very dramatic, uh, dark way. And then the writers went out there and they were like, "Yeah, we kind of like killed this character just to fuck with uh, the fans of that character." And it's like, "Well, no. What the fuck are you doing? Don't be an asshole about it." Mm. Um, but if if the fans you're taking aim at are, you know the the ones who ruin it for everybody else whether that's through um you know bigotry or through gatekeeping or whatever it manifests itself as um i think if you want to use your platform to actively critique those people you should absolutely do it the problem with the absorbal off is that it also gets blurred together with that like slovene fat joke-esque sense of humor that keeps popping up um and so it gets very muddied in that sense in the way that like the love letter it writes to the good fans quote unquote um with the with the members of linda and their positivity and their love for each other and their hero moment is very clean cut not subtle at all very great and then when it comes to victor kennedy or the absorbaloff um it starts as a very uh, sort of like bold faced look at what a toxic fan is like, and then transforms that toxic fan into just like a child's understanding of it. And it's, again, it's where the episode falters the most is because it can't quite commit to just telling a straight faced story about people. What do you mean by that? A straight faced story about people? Because if Victor had just been Victor, like if Victor was just a dude that was just a genuine asshole um, who wanted to track down the doctor for his own nefarious reasons, but didn't turn out to be, you know, a fucking guy in a green fat suit licking his lips, eating everybody. Um, I I think you would have had a much more like impactful story. Mm. Again, I don't know how you would do the whole, like, you know, members of Linda going missing because mm. obviously you can't have like a human killing humans. That, get, that obviously gets a little bit dark. I guess like, I mean, if you still want to do the alien stuff, that's fine, but just don't couch it in this really tropey, tired fat shaming. Oh, I mean, the fat shaming is something we're 100% going to get to in relation to the absorbable off in just two ticks. But um, you just made me think of like something I was thinking about in relation to the absorbable off. And like, again, going back to what I was saying about like this compulsion, we all have to fix things that we think are wrong with Doctor Who. Um and one of the ways I was like, oh, could, we could fix it by doing this, was um, if the Absorbaloff wasn't... Like, if Victor Kennedy was literally, as you're saying, just a man who had an alien, like, who was just 100% a human male, but had found an alien that absorbed people and was using it for his own purposes, then mm. I would be like, oh, okay, I 100% am on board. I get what you're saying, and you're also, like... It's not, obviously, the way that that creature would then be depicted couldn't be a fat, grinning, leering, tongue-waggling Lancashire Mm. man. Um, Yeah. It would be much better as, like, a faceless, kind of voiceless thing. Like a blob, essentially. It would be be ham-fisted, but it would get that point home in a way that doesn't offend anybody. And I think that the Absorbaloff is... uh, We've talked about Love and Monsters. We've established we love it. But the Absorbaloff is fucking bullshit. It it truly is. Like, love and monsters, there are things we love, and then there are the monsters. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, um, all of the problems with love and monsters do directly tie back to the Absorbaloff. It is the thing that drags this episode down the most. Uh, and there are two different very very different ways that the absorbable off kind of fucks with this episode uh and yeah while we're on this topic let's let's get the big one out of the way um let's talk about the absorbable off itself let's so the absorbable off is not even like a russell t creation it was part of a blue peter designer monster competition so it was actually designed by a nine-year-old 
and I'm not saying nine-year-olds' minds aren't fertile uh, imagination playgrounds. They 100% are. And children are your biggest, you know, the, the biggest part of your audience you have to, like, convince. They are much more... They're less... They are essentially less forgiving about certain things than adults in some ways. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced that this creature should have been put into an episode of Doctor Who. Um, no, and especially not with how much glee that they use it. Um, I think that in much the same way as the performances of the Slovene, um, the, the people that, you know, were the Slovene, quote unquote, um, the same thing is happening here with the dude that's turning in this performance as the Absorbaloff in that he has been told to like play to the back of the room mm. and play to like the worst instincts of what a fat suit monster would be. And so it's constantly licking his lips when he absorbs Ursula, which is a truly oh. horrifying scene, um, ends with him. It is. It is absolutely traumatic. And especially because it's happening to you, young woman, there's, oh, there's so much going on there. Um, and then, you know, he absorbs her and he's like, tastes like chicken. And it's like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's, the thing is like, Love and Monsters isn't a particularly subtle episode, but I would say it is elegant and I would say it is profoundly mature right up until the point it decides to throw a fat suit at you. Um, and it, it just breaks my heart that that's where they ultimately end up going with this because again, it just feels like they got too scared of telling a genuinely uh, daring and introspective story. And so they were like, and this comes up a lot in the Russell T Davies era. Oh, we just got to turn the ship around real quick and give it like a traditional alien ending. Um, and that, yeah, it, it bums me out. It would bum me out obviously less, like you said, if it wasn't the fat suit joke, you know, if, if the Absorbloff had been this thing that was, um, you know, just didn't have a voice. Uh, you, if it didn't have a voice, then it would be fine because it's. Well, it's not even just the voice, though. It's the face. It's it's the it's the way the suit is specifically designed to just be a fat person. Yeah. You know, like there's a. Um, I said to you before we started recording. There's a episode of uh, this anime on Netflix called Devil Man Crybaby, which uh, features yeah. a like demon that specifically eats people and then like wears their faces on its side and can talk to people through those faces. And it is so fucked up. And so I think you could do that with the absorbable of co- uh, concept. If it, like you said, no, no face, no personality, no voice. If it just existed to feed on things in the same way that toxic fandom does in the same way that even good fandom does sometimes, um, you would have had a much more thematically and uh, like just cohesive bit of writing there that didn't start doing the, the exact same shit they did with the Slovene where they go so far as to be like, Oh, are you related to a Slovene? It's like, Oh, what is this? It's such a weird, joke isn't it i don't entirely get it and i also don't look at it and think uh, i don't look at the absorber off and think slovene necessarily and it just feels like a yeah like i can see the writer behind those lines and it really annoys me um exactly yeah i think that yeah like it, not only is the absorber off just a bad idea to put into an episode peter k who plays him is a is a stand-up comedian and just an awful 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 choice awful again Mm. awful i don't like him as victor kennedy i don't like him as the absorber off i think it's and it's interesting because like i'm not saying comedians themselves shouldn't be cast in doctor who one very prominent comedian was cast in doctor who and became Catherine the Tate. best character ever <laughs> exactly but um <laughs> this is it this is a purely a, just a bad casting choice and it's annoying because like I don't th- I think there is 100% a place for comedy in Doctor Who and I think this episode does comedy so very well in so many different spots and we're going to talk about a couple of those lines those choice lines um, but like the problem with this like last 10 minutes of this ending is that it's like it's like it's just bad it's just bad comedy um yeah it's bad comedy that, that that it then pairs with a bafflingly horrifying decision regarding the love interest of the story oh god it's, I, the ending of this episode is the absorb the absorb off gets absorbed into the earth um and the doctor using his magic wand i think as elton calls it uh, sonic screwdriver manages to resurrect ursula from this paving slab it got absorbed into but not completely it's just her face 
on the paving slab. And I've seen some theories out there that's like, oh, we never actually see Ursula on the camera that Elton's filming this whole episode through. So maybe it's just a figment of his imagination, which is 10 times worse if you think about the like the ramifications <laughs> of that. Um, but it's just, it's just, it's just, this is something where I would agree with you in saying, like, I don't think the show realizes how cruel a choice they've made because condemning a character to live as a paving slab for the rest of their natural life and thinking that's a kind thing is just Mm. baffling. It is. Uh, Especially, um, so when, when the doctor does the thing and he saves her, there's this, there's this moment that just makes my stomach fucking turn. Uh, David Tennant as the doctor is like, you know, doing his little thing. And then he looks up and he's just like, Elton, fetch a spade. And it's like, that's a person, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm, I'm so profoundly grossed out by the choices that they make at the end here. And like, you see Ursula as the slab, you know, and she's like, oh, it's actually quite peaceful. And she seems almost like lobotomized. Um, there's that joke about, they still have a love life somehow. It's, it's horrifying because it's also paired with the ending of Elton's story in its own right, which is in its own right profound and beautiful and a great commentary on the fact that loss doesn't have to define you, that loneliness doesn't have to define you, that there is a great big world out there that you should go and experience outside of the known. And then you pair it with the fact that he's face-fucking a slab. (laughs) Yeah, I think the BBC got a lot of complaints actually from that implied oral sex joke. And like I get, it's, I get it that the kid, for kids it would have gone right over their heads and not, they wouldn't have been, they would have just thought love life is kissing, but it's yeah, just just it's icky. Not. It's just icky, especially when when um, because he's like, oh, we've got a bit of a love life, and then she's like, oh, let's not go into that, and it's like, you're a sex toy now. You're in your life is as a sex toy. It's, yeah, exactly. It's oh, it's gross. Oh. It's real it's real fucking weird. And it's one of those things where like I feel like you can't even adequately explain it in words. Like somebody has to see this episode to see how fucked up this is. Yeah. It it's just it just feels really 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 gross, especially after the scene of Ursula getting absorbed, which as we said before is like genuinely horrifying. Mm. Uh it's a lot of screaming, it's a lot of no, it's a lot of agency being taken away a physical violation of her and so while it would have been yes quite tragic to have her stay absorbed and dead it would have been thematically much more resonant mm. um but and it yeah we could have sidestepped this whole thing oh truly but uh, before we we get to this moment obviously we get we do get an entire episode of the two of them together and i think we should talk about um the performances of the linda team, especially Elton and Ursula, because I think it's, again, another another really nicely drawn cast of supporting characters, uh, the same as we had last mm. week here. Um, I gotta say, I fucking love Linda. Fucking froth over the little, like, the little community they have. Um, I... Just for a bit of personal context, uh, I've been working, doing a lot of community work here in Sydney for the Mardi Gras, and that's, like just more and more lately I've been thinking more about like communities that people build themselves. And as you would think with working in the LGBT community. Um, And so watching this episode, I just got this immense amount of warmth and, and love this feeling of warmth and love generating from those scenes with Linda. And I don't know if Dr. Who's ever done this kind of thing before or since actually. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just because, like, they're just people, you know what I mean? Like, mm. you know, we talked about last week how, again, great supporting cast with a group of characters who are ostensibly just broad stroke tropes on a sci-fi station, but the performances bring them to life and everything works and it makes you feel for them. But again, they're on a space station orbiting a black hole fighting Satan, <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, um, okay. Linda is just a group of losers, um, you know, and if you don't want to say losers, uh, outcasts, or, you know, if you want to, like, again, we extend that metaphor to the queer community or to fandom, whatever it is. Um, they're just a group of people who haven't been able to find 
uh, a place in in a more traditional societal setup you know whether that be through loss because like you know one of them loses her daughter to drugs um i, I definitely get the strong impression that uh bliss is queer herself um there's there's just a lot going on with each of them as to why they all found their way there. And I think the casting backs this up perfectly because they all embody this, like, I've met these people before. Do you know what I mean? Like I've been to like a lot of nerd conventions and there's a lot of people out there who are just looking to make a connection with somebody, but they're just dorky and, and earnest and wholesome. And then, so they don't know how to harness that energy to, to make that connection. And so to see them come together this way, um, it just, it, yeah, it reminded me of a lot of the friends that I've made through fandom and whatnot. Um, it's, it's just good. It's just really, really good. <laughs> oh, isn't it just, isn't it just? And, um, it, it, they're just really like well drawn. <sighs> they're well drawn characters, but they're also really well performed and, uh, I really, I really, 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 really like Shirley Henderson, the actor who plays Ursula Blake. Um, she's probably best known as being Moaning Myrtle in the Harry Potter films, but like, she's a really, in the same way as like Catherine O'Hara or, um, the, um, I'm trying to think of that actress who plays, uh, Bonnie on Family Guy. She's got that really distinctive voice. Yeah. Um, like she's got the, this, like this immensely amazing voice that is just like instantly recognizable and just makes you want to, maybe this is just me. I'm not sure if this is a universal experience, but it just makes you want to be her friend so much. Um, oh, totally. I want to be friends with everybody in Linda. Like I want to go down there and bake fucking brownies for them and hang out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like they're not in the show for very long as that group, but like it does leave quite an impression on you. And another reason why it's so like amazing and fresh is because of like, I've spoken, to, we've spoken about this before on the podcast is like the use of popular music is never mm. not a good idea. <laughs> and I think having ELO so much like ELO, the band and the songs like playing through that this episode really lends it a bit of reality, but a bit of funness. I, yeah. It's like the perfect choice. Cause yeah, you're right. It straddles that line between like it grounds it in reality, but it is also, it's, it's like a dorky choice. You know, it's, it's that earnestness. It's, I don't really mm. give a shit if they sound, you know, cheesy to somebody else. I, I like them for what they are, which is like a universal experience as a doctor who fan. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I feel like it, like, they're just, like, honestly one of the best things that Russell T's ever written. Uh, I know we've spoken on this very episode about how he, you know, revels in a bit of tragedy and a bit of cynicism. But this is just some of the, one of the sweetest things he's ever done, you know? And it's, like, not even saccharine sweet. It's just genuinely wholesome. And their little gang in the community yeah. that they have just gives me such an appreciation of like human kindness and connection. He loves humans. And I, I just wish we saw more of it or that he was able to harness it a bit more, um, on his time on yeah. the show. I'd agree with that. I think that kindness also extends to, I know that like, if we want to talk, uh, well, for you at least a little bit more into the realm of criticism here, I, I know that for you, the stuff with Elton's mum doesn't land as hard as it does uh, for me. I think when I, when I first watched this episode and when I, as a kid and subsequent rewatches, I've always really appreciated that as a moment. It was only this time watching it in preparation for the episode that this podcast that I realized that the episode really doesn't do much to build up Elton's mum as even a, like a, a figure in his life at all. And so it just kind of felt like it came out of left field for me. I feel like you're about to argue mm. against that point. <laughs> Uh, no, look, I mean, I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. Um, I would argue that it does just enough, like, like barely by a hair, just enough to establish her as part of Elton's history, if not, you know, a defining factor for him. Like, he's not defined by the loss of his mother, um, but at the same time... It's obviously not too much of a stretch to assume that his obsession with the doctor is a byproduct of his trauma of losing his mum on that same night. And so I think if you are a little bit generous with it, if, if you if you give it a little bit of rope, um, by the time you get to uh, the revelation scene where Elton finds out about what actually happened to his mum that night, um, you know, killed by an alien that the doctor couldn't stop in time. And then again, to your point about the uh, ES 
ESO? ELO? ELO. ELO. Uh, you get this like montage of like old grainy footage of him and his mum hanging out together, like cooking and then walking in the park and all that sort of shit set to um, some ELO. And it just knocks me out every single time. Um, and it's another reason why the ending with Ursula bothers me so much, because I think... In that moment with the montage with his mum, in the moment where Rose comforts him after um, the absorbable off is, is dispersed and he thinks he's lost everybody, I think that you are dealing with a much more dramatically satisfying, if obviously, yeah, quite tragic ending to things. Um, and so, yeah, to, to, to muddy that water with you know, what, what they do, um, it just, it, yeah, it bums me out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I don't deny the, the power of that scene, but it just, it doesn't work for me, unfortunately. Yeah, look, I, I respect that it doesn't work for you. It does for me, and that, that's fine. I think it's one of the few things on this episode that we do disagree on. Um, what we do both agree on, though, is that, uh, once again, Rose Tyler shows up, mm. and I really like Rose in this episode. It's only five minutes, but I think this is peak Rose Tyler. She is, she's looking fantastic. She's got this great hairstyle that we never see again. It really bums me out. Um, she gets out of the TARDIS uh, and she goes up to Elton. She's like, you upset my mum," you know? And I love Rose when she's uh, defending Jackie because you see that sort of like passion come out again. I think that's really good. And then when she realizes Elton's going through something, you know, she immediately switches over to, I have to comfort him because uh, like the Rose we just saw in the previous episode, she is inherently empathetic to people mm. now. And so granted, you know, it's just a, it's a quick flash in the pan in terms of the doctor and Rose this week. I think the doctor is weird and cold and I don't like him in this episode, but Rose is fantastic. Yeah. I agree with your assessment of Rose. And if I was going to say anything about what you've just said about the doctor, I guess it would be that we're seeing him from an outsider's perspective. And when I say outsider, I don't mean, because like when, because we've seen him from that perspective before in companion entrance episodes. Um, but in those episodes, he's kind of a different version of himself because he's opening himself up to the possibility of taking somebody else on board. And we're seeing, we're actually seeing him now in this stage from the perspective of somebody who like the doctor doesn't give two shits about who's just an ordinary human. And we, how going to have long discussions in the future about the doctor's like love and dislike of humanity. Um, and I feel like this is one of the ones in the dislike category because he is like you say, like cold and, and alien to, to Elton and doesn't react in the ways that obviously you would expect a human to do, but he's not human. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, like we just got done with two episodes specifically about how much he loves humanity. Do you know what I mean? Like I, no, I definitely I, understand I, what you're saying. And I think if it was just a perspective thing, that would be one thing. But I think specifically the way the doctor treats the situation with Elton is yeah. just not very doctor like. Well, I, not to push back on you, but I am because it's, it's a thing in the show that he is, he is a man of multiplicities multitudes and what he says one week is not what he says the next week um and that's not a result of an ethos right guiding the show that's just a result of different writers writing the same character week in week out and russell t wrote last week as well though <laughs> we have both acknowledged that the doctor goes through stages of loving and hating humanity and can show both sides and Mm. I, I don't think just because one episode a week ago said something doesn't mean the show has never taken that as a rule. No, like I get it. I'm just like, you put an innocent man and an alien who's just killed four innocent people in front of the doctor and he goes, do whatever you want. I don't give a shit. That makes no sense. And then the Ursula thing on top of that is like, did he ask Ursula what she wanted? Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's just... It's a, it's a really flippant disregard for the emotional realities that the episode itself was just dealing with. Like, I think he comes in like a jackhammer, and I think it's a problem. Yeah, I agree. 
Uh, but look, yeah, look, fair. Okay. I, I will acknowledge that, you know, there there are inconsistencies between episodes that aren't necessarily a byproduct of, like, poor writing or anything. Uh, I, I think it's just because this ending elicits such a strong response in me by the time that I'm dealing with the Doctor in this episode, um, I'm already quite, like, on edge uh, about everything. And so any, any slight sort of uh, thing is an affront to me in the, in the end of Love and Monsters. Um, what isn't an affront, though, is that I think that uh, just as a quick fire round to wrap us up here, um, structurally speaking and in terms of its, its writing, it is, it's, it's very tight. Uh, the direction style is um, quite unique and interesting to this episode in that there's a lot of quick jump cuts uh, and a lot of things where, you know, Elton will be like, that's how I met um, Ursula. And then it will cut to like a really quick shot of Ursula and then cuts back to him and he'll be like, oh, you know, and then that's how we met, blah, blah, blah poor her and then it cuts to a shot much later in the episode of her in pain and so it's like this it's not exactly non-linear i mean it is at times um but it just feels very light on its feet and and very flowy and just yeah a little bit experimental with the way that it presents this story um and i i, know, I really fuck with that yeah it's very 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 tactile like i said before and and, and flexible and 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 um is juggling a lot of different things and and trying different things ultimately in in the way that it tells a doctor who story um like even the beginning where it you know we enter in media res because elton wanted to put that bit at the beginning because it's a brilliant opener um Mm. which also leads opens up like thoughts about how elton is an unreliable narrator and is chopping and changing this narrative he's the one editing this this story together um and so we'll yeah like i i I think that's just something interesting to consider when you watch this episode. Um, you're right. Quick fire things. Just a couple of lines that I really, really like. Uh, when Elton goes to his house and he says, there's two women that live there now and they're a bit severe. Um, I really like that. Uh, it feels very Whedon-esque for some reason. I think the use of the word severe is just like very particular. And one that you and I have been saying to each other nonstop this past week, which is... Uh, the bit where Elton's in the alley and he's like, I've got to find Rose. You know, how do you find a one girl in a million in a city, a seething metropolis? And then it just cuts to, Oh, that's Rose Tyler. She lives just down there. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, a perfect bit of comedy. And again, like a very, very well done comedy in this episode. Yeah. I, I, yeah, like, it, it's a very funny episode. Um, like, the quote that we used at the beginning of the episode, the whole, like, you know, uh, one of the members of Linda is uh, writing a novel, and so it cuts to him sharing part of that novel with the the gang, and, you know, it just ends on that line of, like, this is the last time you ride the ghost train, Johnny Fran- Johnny Franzella, Franzetta, fucking whatever it is. Um, it's, it get, it's, it's just very warm. Um, the comedy really works in this, except for the, the fat jokes, obviously. Uh, we, we, we don't fuck with those. Um, yeah, I think the only other, like, tiny thing I, I really wanted to mention was, like, a special shout-out to the weird Benny Hill uh, bit at the oh, beginning. Yeah. Where the Doctor and Rose and the, uh, the alien that they find at the start are, like, running in and out of doors, and they all come out in different directions. It's, you know what Benny Hill is. It's literally the Benny Hill joke, but without the Benny Hill theme. Um, and normally, I hate fun. I would hate that but I fucking loved it. Mm. And I, I, I can't explain it any other way than that love and monsters shouldn't work, but it absolutely does for me. It does up until the absorber off appears, basically. You can well, say. yeah. 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 I just blocked that from it. Literally, we were t- like texting each other about doing this episode. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'm really excited to talk about love and monsters. And CJ sent me a screenshot of the absorber off. And I was like, oh shit, I completely forgot that thing was in this episode because I just, I block it out of my memory when I think about love and monsters because I just want to focus on the stuff it gets right. Like the Jackie, the found family, the comedy, it, the, the, the heart of it all. Um, I think there's more than enough good here that this should be considered uh, a classic Doctor Who episode. Would you care to put a rating to that? I would. I would. Um, I am going to slam this with a very lovely A-. minus. You sunk my battleship. That's what I was going to say too. A- minus for me. Only only because of Ursula the Paving Slab and the Absorbaloff. And I hate to have to do that. 
Oh yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking because if if they had stuck the landing, I would consider this an A plus. Um, I I really do love it that much, and it feels good to be a little bit contrarian against against the fan base. Uh, <laughs> speaking of an episode that you know interrogates fan bases a little bit, uh, I think that the tide is turning a little bit with this episode because I remember like, uh, oh god, I remember like, um, vigorously defending it on the forums when it used to be free forums on doctorwhotv.co.uk and getting like shouted down because I liked this episode so much but um it's yeah I feel like the tide is turning the tide is turning and so it should and so it should uh just the same as Clara is having a renaissance so too is the love and monster renaissance As always, uh, thank you so much for listening every week here, folks. Uh, If you would like, uh, please drop us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to the show because it helps us grow and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Uh, If you want to reach out and have your thoughts or questions read on the show, you can do so by emailing us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at twoheartspod, the number two. Uh, and I've been CJ, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricalum. And I have been James, and you can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. Uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks for The Idiot's Lantern and Fear Her. We're going to go back in time just a tick to recap that episode, uh, as well as look at the last episode before the finale. How exciting. And folks, let me just say, if you came into this episode expecting us to tear it apart, uh, you're going to really enjoy our conversation about Fear Her. So um, I guess we'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.